All right. Well, hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to this edition of What's Next Live with my friend. Sorry, I'm done. <laughs> who is working it out today. Uh, he was kind enough to spend a little time with me. Uh, we met a number of years ago, and uh, I never forgot it. It was one of those fun times in San Diego. Right. Um, but for those of you who don't know who he is, besides the complete fabulousness, <laughs> Bonin, why don't you share with us uh, a little bit about yourself? Yeah, of course. Well, it looks like you got down here, uh, you know, marketing exec, investor and author. I did write a book. Uh, it's in the top right-hand corner, it looks like. Text me, 646-759-1837. But I started my career off, um, actually, I wanted to be a teacher. I thought I was going to go into political philosophy. I had a web company in college. We sold it, and I came out with the goal of going to school in Columbia. And uh, I went to an internet party, and there was a vodka fountain and a shrimp boat. And I thought, you know what? The internet's for me. So <laughs> I ended up uh, freelance. Uh, I ended up, sorry, starting two global digital agencies, one uh, that was privately held, the other one that was publicly held. Uh, and then I left the agency side, it was at IPG, but I left the agency side because I thought clients were too dumb to buy good work. So I became a dumb client uh, and I became chief digital officer of PepsiCo, which I did for a little under five years, You know, launching a lot of key programs there. I left there and went to Mondelez, which at the time was Kraft. So Oreo, Wheat, Thin Stride, Trident, and Triscuit, and then we became Mondelez, which took the, you know, the biscuit business and the chocolate business. And I was chief media and e-commerce officer for them for a little under five years again, um, and really focused on what's called digital transformation now. Then it was like, oh my God, what's Facebook? Uh, and it uh, you know, and really drove them from about 3% spending in digital to 32, added $2 billion of top line net revenue, blah, yada, yada. Left there, living in China, decided to quit because I was watching messaging grow and said, I'm gonna invest in messaging technology and I'm gonna become rich. And uh, I did that, but along the way, I met a guy named Rich who owned a company called Sundial, and I joined a chief growth officer and uh, focused on using messaging to grow that business. And 12 months later, we sold it for a little under a billion dollars, uh, having doubled the business. And then um, now we focus on investing, and uh, and that's about it. And I wrote well, a book. What I love about, there's so many things I wanna sort of talk to you about that you just kind of shared so quickly, but. Yeah. You know, you were a mover and shaker as a very young CMO. I mean, right. you were sort of very early in the uh, early days of um, sort of social media. And so so how was that kind of entering? A, it was a Fortune 50 company right. um, and really being a CMO that people might have gone, hmm, he's got some crazy ideas. Well, you know, when they brought me over, they wanted they I thought it was brilliant because they said, you know, we believe the future is digital and we want a digital person to chart uh, the future of our approach to marketing. And so I thought that that that, first of all, made me believe that there was real they were really serious. Um, but at the same time, PepsiCo was really serious, too. But here was a chance to have a broader remit. Uh, and so, you know, at the end of the day, I tell people it was difficult. Um, but, uh, you know, I had a great boss in Dana. And um, I had a lot of support from the senior leadership. And really, I'm one of those people where I like to play like whack-a-mole, where you know a lot of people are like, we need alignment. First of all, I don't believe in alignment. I believe in coalition of the willing. Like, I just need the three people who are going to walk barefoot with me, and eventually we'll turn it into a religion. Uh, but 
you know, I also believe in like whack-a-mole. So I don't try to focus on one thing. You know, I try to set big vision goals, but then I try to create a lot of different projects because you can only slap down one at a time and then the next one pops up and you keep, you know, and eventually one makes it through. And so I think that that was the big thing. But I think for me, the most important piece of that role was, you know, at the end of the day, these roles are less about command and control. And they're really about how do you learn to inspire people and how do you bring people along and give them the freedom to create things that they didn't even think were possible. And that's the thing that I think what we did really, really well. And we really invested in thinking differently about talent, thinking different about talent accelerators, uh, thinking different around how do we create mandates that allow talent to use their best skill set, no matter which piece left or right brain it was, but also pushing them. And so, you know, at the end of the day, when you inspire an overall organization, you can bring about change in ways that you never thought possible. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's almost like we're at a, you know, precipices of it, a, of the next revolution of trying to get people to come along another journey, right, at this point. And oh, we were uh, kind of forced in some respects over the last four months, but go ahead, sorry. No, I was going to say, you know, we're a little forced, but, you know, since you were really at the tip of the spear of, of doing a lot of really innovative marketing years ago now, and, and it really, and I don't want to ignore sort of your book, which I have in the top right there, text me because it was one of those things of like, here you've got this CMO of a Fortune 50 company who sort of believes messaging is going to be, uh, you know, the next big frontier as well, how much the phone has changed our lives. And then makes the title of his book, text me with his real phone number. <laughs> Not like trying to be, don't reach out to me. This is like, no, no, no. I want to hear from you. And, and what were you thinking you were going to get? Kind of step us through what led you to text me and your phone number. And then more importantly, what, what did you learn? Oh, God, man, that's so hard. Uh, you know, because we learned so much. I didn't know what to expect, right? I had no clue what to expect. I, I, we In the book, we try to, and mind you, the book is relatively old. That was uh, the end of 2016. So, you know, and then the bet was not just mobile, but actually your phone number will become the future of identity. Your phone number will be the most important thing. If I could capture the phone number, think about COVID. You know, if you had the phone number of every single customer who bought your product today, how happy would you have been over the last four months? So that is really kind of where we were going is it is the most personal space that you can operate in. But if people give you permission, you can have the most dramatic impact on the relationship that you have with them. And I wanted to see what relationships I could build. And I've built friendships of people who I still to this day have never met. But, well, you know, we all we do is text. Um, I got, you know, we started, the, the book tells you, like, here's certain things that you can text in, and here's certain questions that, you know, uh, that if you text A1, and that's how we started, we we're like, okay, we're going to have to guide people. Ah, that's the last thing we ended up having to do. And the funny thing is, is that, um, you know, we learned a lot. So some of the things really quickly are, like, uh, a younger generation, they, um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that have changed. So just for example, when we talked to parents, they talked a lot about uh, the collapsing of hierarchy. So there used to be a moment where, you know, you're driving and you have to drop this little one off and you're late and they keep tugging on you and you're like, what is it? And they're like, why is the sky blue? And you're like, because I say so. <laughs> And now they're like, well, that's funny because Google has a totally different answer, you know, <laughs> uh, or, you know, I don't care. Do not smoke marijuana. 
Well, that's funny. Your friends just put photos of you doing bong hits on Facebook in college and you turned out okay. So there's like this kind of collapsing of hierarchy. And then there's also the death of rebellion. So when I was young, you know, I used to say I'm going to little Johnny's house. And as long as I got there in some reasonable time, my mom didn't know or my dad, my parents didn't know the difference. But now we literally have a GPS in their pocket. So we know where they are every single moment of the day. I'm sure you know Carolyn Everson. In the book, she says, I can't wait to put a chip in my daughter's head so I can track their movement all the time. And I was like, you are quite crazy, Carolyn. But no, but we love you. No. But, you know, I mean, so it's that that there's that death of, of rebellion. And then when you think about it, uh, you know, we asked parents, what's the average age you would give a kid a cell phone? And and the average age turned out to be 12, but some parents are like, birth, you know, like here you got you Google, figure it out. <laughs> You're on your own. And then, you know, think about this. When I went to college, I would talk to my parents maybe once or twice a week if I'm lucky or unlucky, depends on how your relationship with your parents. But now there's a continual dialogue. And so if this was supposed to be the moment in time when you left the parental unit and you became the human you were going to be in life, you know, the question is, does that still happen? But what happens are even better. Think about this. The very first thing that a kid. So what we did was we asked, you know, it turns out that they're that uh, um, 80 percent of newborn babies have their photo up on uh, some type of social platform within the very first hour of the birth. So the very first thing you see when you come into this world is dad there, you know, with the iPhone or the Android depends on his economic situation. And he's going, OK, smile. You're like, no, I can't smile. I'm being born. Can we do this later? So, I mean. All the way through to dating has changed, religion has changed, memory has changed. Uh, and so I didn't know what to expect, but we tried to shape people through what we thought were the arguments. But I get everything. I'll tell you, the most common I get is people will say things like, hey. And so I'm like, hey, back. Or they'll say hi. So I'm like, hi, back. And I don't know who the person is. So when they come in, they're just a, a random telephone number to me. And I have to then begin to build a rapport with them and figure out, who they are, what they, and it's so weird to just ask the person, what's your name, like when they first come in. But, you, you know, I got something, a woman told me, she said, look, I found your videos. She's like, I was in a car accident. They thought I was going to be paralyzed. I found your videos, Gary V and uh, one other person. And uh, she said, I watched them. I saw you talk, you know, crazy about messaging. She said, every day I would put my feet over the hospital bed and try to wiggle them. And then one day they actually moved. And she said, I realized that I couldn't do the job that I had before, so I decided that I was going to open up a catering service that employed people with disabilities, and we were going to use text messaging to build that catering service. She said, I reached out and texted you, and you texted me back, and I was so embarrassed. I didn't know what to do, so I waited, but I just want you to know, and this is the text she sent to me, I've started the catering business. We're successful now. I just want to thank you for that inspiration. And I was like, wow, this is, you know, and now we're doing a case study with her on kind of how she's using texting to grow uh, in the food space. And so I don't know what, I usually read a story. We don't have, you know, uh, like maybe a little later, but, uh, and it's a woman who talks to me about how, how the phone ruined her last relationship. And she uses like LOL. And I'm like, this isn't a laughing matter. And then she goes in and she explains and she gets really deep around how her, uh, her ex-boyfriend was uh, somebody who had, was charismatic, how she grew up texting and it put her in a place where she can't use Google when she's talking face to face. She can't edit a word mid conversation. So she's so used to this medium that it shaped the way she interacts with people. So when she does it in real life, 
she actually becomes nervous and she had anxiety attacks when trying to have a conversation with her. And then I just shared some thoughts and told her I thought she was amazing and that she's self-aware and that she's a rock star and, you know, that kind of stuff. And we since then have had like a deep dialogue around just like life and business. And so you don't know what you're what to expect. But I will tell you, if you put in the time and you take the effort to actually begin to understand who's on the other side and then build a real rapport and dialogue, you can build a true relationship that will have lasting. I'll tell you, the biggest thing that I do, people are like, this isn't really you. This must be a bot. And so then I'll grab somebody else's phone. I'll take a photo with like the timestamp of their phone and click. And they're like, oh, my God, it's you. And so, you know, and from that moment on, you got somebody who, you know, connected to you for life. So, yeah. But I think that that's what's made you, you know, so successful in sort of this whole communication venue. And, and I and, you know, I think social media is is a way to really especially right now. You know, many of us are still locked up. Uh, I'm guessing you're in New York. I am in New York. I'm reporting live from the former epicenter. <laughs> now I'm in the epicenter, otherwise known as Los Angeles. Right. So between the two of us, I think we've just surpassed New York. Right. Um, oh, but during this time, uh, you know, social media has really allowed us to stay together. And I know that there's the divisive side of social media, which I am absolutely not a fan of. But that connection point with people, just the sort of touch in, just a text message with somebody whom they thought was a bot on the other end and someone they may admire for the work that you had accomplished, all that you had accomplished at such a young age, you know, being a chief marketing officer of a Fortune 50 company and working with Nestle and making the first 3D printed Oreo cookie at SWSX, right? You've done a lot of things and then you responded. It's like the impact that has on somebody's, you know, confidence and reaching out in, in a medium. And do you feel like text message is going to be kind of the next frontier? I, you know, minus the COVID tracing, but I mean, from a business, like a sales and marketing perspective and yeah. We have 11 investments in the messaging space. So do I believe in it? I think we have the most expansive portfolio probably of anybody in the marketing space. Uh, now, that's not to say that we have the largest investments in them, but we definitely have the most diverse. And so I think it cuts across every single aspect. Um, there's a company we have called Open Message, which is the reinvention of messaging through visual messages that come into your uh, direct into your iMessage. I think it's transformational. We're already seeing businesses being built on top of it. We have a text to buy, text to talk baby food business, which is on fire right now, where you're really building relationships with mom in totally new ways. We've got a company called OneQ, which basically does survey, immediate survey data, uh, you know, real time. Well, I hate if I say survey, but, uh, you know, um, uh, consumer information data in real time. And you can literally send out a question. And you can watch the pins drop geographically as people answer it. And, it, you know, you can get a thousand people to respond in under an hour. So those type of things are powerful. We have a two-way communication, you know, peer-to-peer -peer called Superphone, which we put into um, one, a major electronics store here, which we've been working on that deal for almost two years. We got it in. They had 16 stores. COVID hits. They roll it across all of their sales force. And uh, originally it was doing about 90000 a month for a salesperson because we gave them some intelligence. Because if you walk into a place and you're trying to buy a range oven, you're not going to buy a day of no matter how good that salesperson is. But if you're really a good salesperson, you're not going to let that person get away after spending an hour. You're going to ask for their right. phone. So we went in and we asked and every single person got with Some people were doing your taking credit cards over phone. So we said, but there's no intelligence there. Plus when that person leaves, all the data goes. So there's no intelligence. So we put in things like never lose touch. So if I haven't talked to you in 
you know, whatever interval a week, send one of these three messages. Hey, you still interested in the range? And we gave intelligence and wrapped it around. So they rolled it out across the whole sales force. CMO called me maybe three weeks ago and said, I just want to thank you. And I've known him for a long time now. And I said, what do you mean? He said, if it wasn't for this platform, we wouldn't have had a business right now. We reinvented the way that we do curbside pickup. It allowed us to have all of our salespeople connect with consumer. It was crazy, you know, and it was like, not even just like, thank you as like, you know, like a real heartfelt, like you literally transformed our business. And then again, the open message platform, I think is transformational. So yeah, we believe that messaging, I mean, the phone number is the new identity, especially when you're facing the cookie apocalypse. So we see conversion rates. Open message is 60% higher than even gray bubble black text conversion rate is. And gray bubble black text conversion rate is some of the highest conversion rates we've seen in the market before open message. So, I mean, it's, it's not even a comparison. I just think that, you know, we were early to see that wave. And I think that now businesses are moving into it, uh, you know, 84% of businesses say that they're going to be texting with their consumers over the next 12 months. And I think COVID accelerated that in a totally different way. And I think what's missing now is that we saw the world and said, everything that exists for ad tech today will have to exist for message tech tomorrow. So that's where I think that there's a whole new industry that's being created. Think about like right now, we are also you know, doing social commerce, but think about all the credit card purchasers that exist just to do it in social, just to do it on email, just to do it on web. All that's gonna be recreated in messaging. I mean, think about the data sets. So we're working with LiveRamp today to look at what are the different data sets that can be connected to a phone number. I mean, it, you know, people don't realize how big this space is gonna be. And we have like a company called Holler, which is literally, uh, you know, uh, experiences inside a keyboard. So emojis, gifts, they're in billions of keyboards today. And the user base is just tremendous. You know, we send more text messages almost, I think it was like 30X than we do Google searches. So, I mean, this is where human attention is and we just haven't monetized it or figured out how to actually participate in it in a commercial way. Well, you know, I'd say this. So for those of you, I asked sort of where everybody is. It's great to see we have, you know, people from Arizona and Colorado. And I even got some friends dialing in from Honolulu, which is where I'm from. And I've got family on, apparently. Uh, my cousin's listening that. So hi to everybody. Uh, but please add some, ask some questions below for Bona. And he's, you know, here to, you know, answer any questions that you have around these topics. Um, but we have been... Uh, you know, really paying attention, as I'm sure you have, that during this time, it's actually shined a light on the lack of investments some brands have made on technology. And so when COVID hit, it was like they were not prepared at all. Like that example of that restaurant, like had they not already invested, you know, curbside pickup, keeping the door open, you know, restaurants who didn't even have their menus online or weren't connected to Uber Eats or Grubhub, that they found it really, really challenging. Um, to sort of keep things going, even though they really wanted to, you know, it was about keeping themselves safe and their employees safe. Uh, but how do you think um, the behaviors of today will actually maintain themselves of the things we've now retrained ourselves over the last five or six months? What, what habits do you think are going to stick as it relates to this sort of social media, social commerce, uh, you know, buying groceries online as an example, you know, whatever it might be, educating online, uh, anything. What, what habits do you think might stick? You know, and that's the real question, right? That's the question. I know, you know, 
we we were doing a show called Positivity and Pivots, and that's the one thing we would explore in, in all different areas. Uh, what is going to be the consumer behavior that stays and what's going to be that that comes back or how much will it come back and how much will it? And that's the real question. But I actually think, and I'm going to come right back to it, it's on both sides too. So the other thing that I find fascinating is, you know, there was a great meme that said, who drove digital transformation inside the organization faster? The CFO, or sorry, the CMO, the CEO, or COVID-19? Oh, yeah, COVID. Yeah, COVID-19. And so what behaviors have organizations changed that are going to stick? And are organizations focused enough today on understanding what were the things that we changed that were actually really, really good that made us operate much more efficiently? And quite frankly, one of the things I found that was so profound, and we had um, the chief innovation officer from Blue Blue Cross Blue Shield on, on one of our episodes, and he talked a little bit about this, that we weren't prepared, of, we didn't really understand how to digitally work. And actually, um, the CMO Kellogg talked about this too, uh, but we got to know people in a more empathetic and deeper way than we actually knew them, even when we saw them in person. And so what does that mean for our personal relationships? Are they, they're not superficial, but we don't, we never saw their children. We never saw their dogs. We didn't even meet their significant other. Like there's so many things that happened that we got to know our teams and it created a real empathy and actually maybe a closer team bond than we've ever really had before. And we also had to be sensitive to just a lot more sensitive to people's situations. So were they a home alone quarantining and are we working them too much? So I think that that piece is really fascinating. What of those are going to stick? Uh, we had somebody say, you know, uh, the CMO of Levi said, we never thought that we could judge the fall line over a video conference. Well, guess what? <laughs> we had no choice. So board meetings that are happening. So we'll see what happens there. And so I just encourage businesses to really think about what did we change that we should keep? And what is going to actually, and then more importantly is right now, anything that you believe you should have been doing to move the business much more forward than it is today, do right now. Because the moment the business goes back, it'll get back to its slow ways again. It'll get stuck. This is now the time to make real, true, impactful change that will have meaning over the next you know, five to 10 years. From a consumer standpoint, there's no question that online buying behavior is here to stay. There's no question that people are going to move purchases that are replenishment purchases into the online space. There's no question that an older demographic is now buying. We no longer have to ask the question. I remember when I took on e-com, there were people who asked, are people really going to buy Oreos online? Well, guess what? That's not even, you know, then I was like, am I making a bad career decision? Uh, but, you know, so, I mean, those behaviors we know are going to happen. You know, the question will be is, are, are things like gyms going to come back? Or are people going to be more happy working out at home? I think a large portion of people are actually going to be okay with it. They've actually gotten used to it. It became an easier part of their life. You know, are people going to, um, uh, you know, what are they going to do around movies and entertainment and sporting events? You know, I think that until, you know, there's a consumer confidence, I think all those things will come back, but uh, especially like the live entertainment and that stuff, but there's going to be a consumer confidence moment where still to this day, I'm nervous. We go out to the restaurants here, but you know, I went to, actually I went to my first meeting at a company the other day and there was a group that was doing uh, an event outside for local businesses, but there was like 80 people there. And I was just like, whoa, and it was a little close. I was like, this is a little too close for me. I'm not ready for this quite yet. And so consumer confidence, I'll tell you, we have to have work done in our, our place. And I'm like, I don't even know if I'm ready for that. Like, so. <laughs> 
you know? Right. So I think consumer confidence is something that, and I think that the brands that have done a really amazing job are folks like Lysol, taking, you know, a brand that already has credentials and then applying that to places like travel and places where those credentials are needed. And you can believe that the product is actually going to be efficacious and can provide a little bit of kind of that consumer confidence. So I think that, and then the question is what happens to retail? I think retail is forever changed. Um, but I think it's going to be mixed, right? So you're going to also learn how to have retail agents have a deeper, I hope over text because we benefit from that, but a deeper relationship with consumers in some type of digital manner than just being there to receive you when you enter the store. So, you know, that those, those are the holy grail questions. Those are some of the things that we're betting on. Um, the other thing that I think is the most interesting is that, we, you know, it's hard to say what, what, you know, the only thing we can do is look at 2008 to see what areas are kind of recession proof, because one of the things we're still not really talking about is that in this country specifically, you know, look, our, um, you know, our uh, unemployment benefits end this month. So we've been propping the economy up quite a bit. What's going to happen? Maybe there's another stimulus. But at some point in time, we are going to hit a slowdown or some level of recession. And what industries are going to be able to survive through that? Real estate will probably struggle a little bit. Um, you know, we know that QSRs tend to do really well. Uh, you know, so we have to look at what are the things that do well and, and don't do well and think about it. Um, but I also believe that one of the pieces that we're going to see, which is interesting in this recession or in this situation versus others, is savings is going up. So a younger generation is saying, we, we always said we don't, you know, save for a rainy day. Well, we never had a rainy day. Well, guess what? The skies opened up, the heavens poured down, lightning struck, like this was the rainiest day you could ever have. And so a younger generation is saying, okay, I don't want to ever be in a situation. So I'm going to now look at, how, and now give them more financial power with platforms like Acorns, you know, um, uh, you know, and even some of the like save cash back off of, off of you know, so some of the, uh, the more, powerful saving platforms are giving them a more financial literate consciousness. And I think that's a big trend that we've never really seen before that we're going to see coming out of this now. I, I said a lot. Sorry about that. No, that's okay. It was all really good information. And, you know, along the habits and, you know, I often get asked the question, what do I think, what do I think is going to come out of this? And, it, it, you know, it, so start in kind of the first three months of this, I felt like it exposed this inequality and in access. Right to the things that we needed if we were all gonna be locked down. So not everyone has high-speed internet in their home. Not everybody has the ability to educate their children from home or you know, if they're both working. Not everybody has uh, some of the things that you know many of us do. And, and that really exposed it. And I use an example, I was driving down the street in my neighborhood, it was maybe the first month and Starbucks was closed, but the parking lot was packed. And I was like, why is the parking lot packed? So I, of course, turned around and went through the parking lot. And sure enough, people were sitting in their cars getting free Wi-Fi. Huh. <laughs> so sometimes they were on like a Zoom call, right. you can right. see, right? But sometimes it was three kids in the back of a minivan trying to educate and do classes and do things. And so it really exposed to me this inequality. And then, bam, Black Lives Matter happens. And then it really exposed, you know, sort of everything that was going on. And so... Um, you know, I would be remiss to not say, right. I think we've started to spend a lot of time on inclusive marketing and making sure we're being 
better and more thoughtful about how we communicate and reach out and get personal, especially during this time. What's the right tone? What's the right message? You know, how do you sound empathetic without pandering? You know, it is such a fine line. And oh, yeah. I thought I caught your CNN segment, so good on you um, having this conversation. So there was no way I could not ask, right? Um, but I'm going to take the tact of inclusive marketing. I, I just want to sit there for a second because I think there's a lot to be said for as everyone's scrambling to figure out how do we keep revenue coming in the door for businesses, but I can't be deaf to what's happening outside. So what, what would you say to brands considering you were a CMO um, you know, and, and you are, are so vocal on what's going on. Like, how do you pull those things, two things together? Uh, good luck. No, um, that's what my, <laughs> my boss, I said, when I joined Mondelez, I said, you know, any advice? Yeah. Don't F it up. I was like, Oh, that's Sage. Thank you. Yoda. So that's the, <laughs> that's the advice. Don't F it up. No, I think, you know, you can imagine my phone rang quite a bit. Um, you know, it's a very sensitive topic for me because you know, I, I'm born and raised in New York. My parents separated. I, I uh, my mom was a single parent. Uh, I lived in Harlem during the crack epidemic. You know, we didn't have a lot. So statistically, technically, I'm not supposed to be here. You know, lucky enough to have parents. Uh, my mom raised me, but my dad was still in the picture, of course. And now, then they oddly got back together. Longer story, but to have parents that were supportive, but me and my brother making sure that we went to, even though it was public schools, we got into the best classes and, you know, pushing education and science and technology and scrambling, you know, to get us computer time, wherever, and this kind of stuff, the library, all that kind of stuff. And then you grow up and, you know, uh, I enter corporate America. I entered into a private company, which was a family company. So you don't see, there was less kind of, of, I guess, you didn't realize the inequalities. And then I started teaching at NYU and uh, I'm young and I'm teaching in the graduate program and I come outside and I try to hail a taxi and I can't get a taxi. And I spent years chasing taxis down, not get, you know, and you realize that. And so when people ask me, do you like Uber? I'm like, I love Uber because, you know, now they have their issues, but so Lyft, Uber, whatever you want to say, because it's, it's places where I can compartmentalize the challenges that I, the racism that I see, because it's almost like, you land in the airport, it's like, you know, you can be whatever you can, but you can also discriminate against black people and not pick them up in your taxi. So it's like, you know, and you're con it's this constant reminder and it doesn't matter at what socioeconomic level you are, that is still, or when I joined the corporate workforce on a much higher level, you know, you'll walk into meetings and you'll come in with a colleague who works for you and they'll walk right up to him and assume that he's the one who's running the show. And so you see these subtle things and you face that on a continual basis. And you compartmentalize it and you kind of, you know, so you, you see it, you face it, no matter what happens, no matter where you uh, get to in your career. So when you have to step back and think about what that, what that experience is like all the way through the socioeconomic levels, you know, cops are, you know, I'm, I'm still to this day afraid of cops and it's nothing to do with what I see here. It's just growing up, I would get pulled over for driving a Subaru station wagon and they tell me I'm pulled over because I look suspicious driving a Subaru. Well, what, I can't drive a Beamer. So what, what am I allowed to drive? Right. And so, and this is my dad's beat up Subaru station wagon. It wasn't like, you know, so you, you, you know, you become trained. And I, as you know, I, I talked to a person right after this happened and, uh, pretty prominent manager of a pretty prominent celebrity and they were turning I'm 42 I said oh, I'm 42 and they were turning 42 a week later he goes by the way congratulations I said what do you mean he said you made it 
because getting to 42 is like an accomplishment and that's such a crazy thing to deal with so then when you think about how do you market to that and how do you speak to that i think you know the biggest piece is it's not just around messaging it's around what are you doing to support the change in that community in a positive way and how are you showing impact because a lot of times we forget that we it's not just tone deaf components where we are selling products into a community where we don't spend a lot of reinvesting into that community so i think the separation it's hard to separate messaging from what's happening inside the organization from a representation of hiring from you know so it's hard to separate it but to compartmentalize it like you asked me to i think that you have to think about are the things that you're doing and saying moving the goal closer you know what i mean moving closer to the goal helping to move the cause forward and that i think is the most important thing i think that you know, Nike standing behind Kaepernick when it was super cliche, moved the conversation forward in a way that only Nike could. Now, look, Nike still got some backlash in, during this last thing in, in their attempts to continue to do that. I think, though, that those that are actually moving the conversation, moving the cause forward, it becomes clear that you feel, I think, what P&G did, uh, uh, you know, was was great. I think the stuff that Sprite is doing, it is raw. Uh, you know, it's African American creators, but the African American creators are putting up raw messages. And the fact that when I saw it, I was like, "Who is this?" And it was Sprite. I was like, "Look, it's Coca Cola. I never give them credit for anything." But I'm not going to lie, this is pretty decent. So, you know, I think it's it's those people who are finding real ways to progress the conversation, not in a sugar coated way, but in the way that the community that is being affected with it sees it. You know, we, what we see is we see, look, and then I'm gonna shut up about this, but Friday, protest, right? Saturday, they start burning things down. I'm on 7th Avenue, I see cars burning, garbage cans are all coming down from 42nd Street. And I'm just like, burn it down, because I'm like, in 42 years, I haven't seen anything change. Then Sunday, I go to a friend's restaurant where my dad's photos are hanging. These are some of my dad's photos. Uh, and um, and uh, all the restaurants and glass on that street were broken except for his. And he's like, I think it's because your dad's photos. I was like, that's great. But I'm also taking these photos that are originals out of the windows just to protect them. But I'm like, okay, we can't burn it down because we're hurting businesses that are owned by our own. And it, it's a weird thing. And then Monday, you wake up and this guy, and we're being tear gassed in the streets for a photo op. And it's not the photo op around the Bible that I care about. The photo op I cared about was the entire cabinet was nothing but white people. And so it's a clear message of what leadership will look like in this country. Not even an attempt. You can tout out the black surgeon general when you want to try, but when you really want to say, yeah, I mean, it's like, ah, and then I talk, and then Tuesday, the world is filled with black squares. And then I talked to my dad who's 92 and I said, what do you think of everything? He goes, nothing ever changes. And so I'm just like, in almost a decade, he saw Jim Crow. I mean, like crazy stuff, nothing ever changes. So I think that that's the mindset and the psyche that is that you're trying to connect with. And so the only way that you can connect is to show real truth that you are helping to change the conversation, change the cause, invest in progressing things forward. In the absence of that, I mean, and then you have to figure out the creative platforms that you wanna play around in to do that. But as long as you're truly attempting to do that, I think that that's how you connect.
Sorry, that was long-winded and a little. No, but you know, listen, I can I can tell you this. Like I, I'm here to listen, ask the question, and listen right, because right. you know I I'm trying to learn what's the best way for me to navigate the conversation. Right? I it's it's about being empathetic. It's about asking. It's about learning. It's about having really tough dialogues. But at the end of the day, I I knew I trusted you enough to ask the question. Right. Because that's what this is about. It's about a conversation. Right, so but you know, it's not the, the the reality is is that we 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 you know look, women got the right to vote only a couple of years before we did. So it's not you know the journey has been a journey for a lot of underrepresented uh, you know communities, and it's you know and it just happens that right now we're talking about our situation, and you know and I appreciate that. So look, I I look, you know I I don't. I don't blame anyone uh, other than those that are blatantly creating obvious racial tension and separation. And that, I don't know where that comes from, maybe a place of fear. But on the flip side, I do think we do need to ask, like what I was saying on CNN is those that really stand up, um, you know, that those that stand with us will benefit, those that don't will be left behind. But I do think we do need to ask ourselves some of the structures that we have in corporate America. Look, at 36 years old, I was the highest ranking African-American at, you know, a certain organization. And while I'm flattered, it's kind of like, how can that be? How can that really be the case? You know what I mean? So that means that there's a there's some type of breakage. And I believe that there's a breakage when we get to middle management because there's nobody to pull them up. So we lose a lot of them. The high potentials fly through and then we lose them. I believe that there's no board members, so we can't see it. Like, look, when we wanted to create tech forward companies, what did we do? We put tech people on the board. When, you know, and it's, so it's a basic, so I think there, I think middle management, then I think we need to think about, are we really investing in the communities that we not operate in from a geographic perspective, but that we actually sell to? And then I think we have to ask ourselves, who are our partners? Like, are we partnering with people who look like the diversity we want in the rest of the world? And then the last yep. thing, are we tracking and measuring? Just like when we wanted companies to be more green, we told them to publish sustainability reports. I mean, if it's good enough for the environment, I also think humanity can benefit from some of these things that we know. So that's the only thing. And it's not like shouting and yelling from the rooftops. It's just saying if you step back and you take a look at it. And then the reality is the equation on the other side is you get much stronger businesses and much more progressive, diverse thought that can create products that actually fit better into communities that are disproportionately usually buying the product in the first place. Well, you know, it I just want you to know I appreciate you. I appreciate what you're doing out there and fighting the fight and doing what you do every day. You know, I've admired you for years. I, I'm thrilled to have had this opportunity because I know you've been a little busy lately. So I know I know we had to reschedule because I don't know, some three-letter company news CNN, somebody wanted to, and I got bumped. But if I'm gonna get bumped, I might as well get bumped by someone like that, right? Um, but we have a couple questions that I want right. to make sure as we wrap this okay, up. Okay, let's go. One from, all right, we got one from Justin Colvin. He says, right. do you have plans to operate without DID or cell numbers like WhatsApp, WeChat, Kakao, et cetera? Yes. That's All it. Right. That's it. I won't give you any more. But yes, we do. You know, those okay. are more closed platforms. They're on our they're on our roadmap. They should be. WeChat just uh, sorry, WhatsApp just had a kind of a breakthrough. Uh, so we should see uh, a, conver uh, a a version of WhatsApp on our platform coming really, really soon. Uh, we have a number of European customers uh, and Asia customers that are dying to have us move what we're doing in the US for them to there. So we are quickly on that. If you wanna have a conversation, you know my phone number, text me, we can talk more. All right, great. All right, another one. 
uh, from Marie is I, I often say sort of this is a year of the customer and not necessarily the prospect because, you know, take care of the customers you already have. Right. Uh, and so while we stay apart, how do we stay engaged without it being creepy, you know, or out bothering them? Right. So what, what would be your recommendation of staying uh, engaged during this time? Get their phone number. Uh, then text me and I'll, uh, you know, introduce you to one of our platforms and we can uh, work with you to get it done. No, I think uh, that's not a joke, but it is a joke. But no, I think the real thing is, is I think it all starts, you know, I think what, what was interesting to watch was, you know, we're get we, so there was a nail salon that was across the street from me and this whole thing shuts down and they started doing, you know, Instagram lives on how to do your nails and selling nail kits. And so, you know, they would drop them off at your door or whatever, you know, they would deliver them for you in the neighborhood. And what was interesting was it wasn't really about it. What, what they realized was it wasn't about the customer really needing to have their nails done or even really wanting to have their nails done, but during the current situation, wanting to feel the feeling that it feels like to get your nails done, which is to feel beautiful, to feel, you know, re refresh, revive, all those kind of things. And so I think it starts with understanding what is the real, you know, it's kind of cliche because the razorfish guys used to go, you know, a drill doesn't drill a screw. A screw isn't something that holds something. It's about the shelf. Right, exactly. The shelf, the painting, whatever it is. So I think, you know, it's super cliche and super like internet 1999. Very, but, very jobs to be done. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I think it is, there's something about understanding at the root, what are you delivering for your consumer? And then figuring out how do you deliver that in multiple ways that might not necessarily be a product? And how do you do that in a virtual digital way that continues to keep them engaged? And that's, I think, is really at the heart of that. Well, this has been fantastic, Bonin. So, you know, how can people stay in touch? Obviously, text me. There's his number. You know, I'm um, on social. My email's easy. It's bonin at bonninbow.com. I mean, I, you know, you can find me. I'm so easy to find. If you can't find me, then, uh, you know, we probably shouldn't talk. <laughs> how about that? I think the next time I'm going to have you come on, Bonin, it's going to be that you're going to, we're going to, we're going to have someone cut your hair, trim your hair. Live. I, I kind of, you know, I, I but I, what I'm trying to do here is see if I can just braid everything together so you don't have to hear me talk that's what i'm going after no no my uh, trust me <laughs> everybody in my life is like dude like it come it's about time I'm like but when am i ever going to be able to get away with this like i'm just curious to see what will actually happen but don't worry the next couple of weeks we'll uh, we'll clean stuff up over here well you know thank you so much bonnet thank you i appreciate thank you me. my friend thank you for spending 40 minutes with us on linkedin live here for what's next Thank you everybody for joining. Thanks for your questions. We'll, we'll have some more answers to them uh, shortly, but I appreciate you spending time with us today, Bonin. Uh, Tiffany, Stay it's safe. my pleasure. It's actually my pleasure at any time. And I'm just excited uh, to have you as a friend and honored to be on your show. So thank you. Thank you, my friend.